Hello and welcome to the Noodlebugs podcast, where we discuss aspects of the natural world. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Today we're speaking to a marine biologist. Her name is Fam Chaka. So hello Fam Chaka, how are you doing today? I am very good, Ned. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm a really big fan of your uh, Noodle Bugs podcast. So what got you so interested in like, not nat- well it is nature, but like what got you so interested in oceans and the bay and things like that? Well, um, you know, when I was your age, I was always spending time outside. So I was always really connected with nature and I really loved animals as well, um, like horses and dogs and, and all kinds of wildlife. And um, I grew up in, in the Netherlands, in the north of Europe. Um, and yeah, I, I just spent all my time outside. And so so when it was time for me to, um, you know, finish high school and, and choose uh, a university to go and study, I chose to to study biology because I was super interested in in animals and plants and everything that lives and how it's all connected with each other. Um, Now, my mum was very smart because in the Netherlands, when you go to university, you often move out of your parents' home when you're about 18 or 19 years old and then you live on your own with friends. And so the first year at uni, I was doing at least as much partying as I was learning (laughs) and being in class. So my mom was really smart and she said, look, if you ace all of your exams in your first year of uni, then I will give you a present. I will pay for your first dive certificate, your first scuba dive certificate. Um, so that was really good motivation for me to do my best in, in uni. And, uh, wow. and and so, yeah, so I, I, I made all my exams and then um, I did my dive certificate. And very soon after, uh, my godfather uh, took us to the tropics and we went on our first tropical dive. And as soon as I stuck my head underwater and I saw a coral reef for the first time uh, at a depth of, you know, about 10, 15 meters with all the colorful fish and the beautiful, beautiful colors everywhere and so much life. I was completely sold um, because all that stuff looked so weird to me. You know, I'd been studying biology and animals and plants for a whole year and I stuck my head on the water and I had no idea what I was looking at. I was looking at these corals and I was thinking, what are these? Are they stones? Are they animals? Are they plants? I have no idea what I'm looking at here. And so I got super curious. And then I decided to uh, to specialize my biology course into marine biology. Okay, that sounds like a lot of fun. I wish I got to go scuba diving. Well, I don't know how old you are now, but you should be able to once you hit 12. So, you know, nice birthday present well, from your mom and dad. <laughs> I can definitely recommend it. Um, it's super cool to be down there with uh, with all the fish and all the marine life and see them from up close. Okay, but I've I've been really interested in it just for, like by thinking of things to ask you for the podcast. I've realized how amazing the ocean is and all the weird things in it, like. There's so many, I can't think of one in particular, but colossal squids and things like that. I know, colossal squids are 
I think one of the most fascinating animals because I don't I don't know what you know about colossal squids, but um, it's not just the size you know of them, which is about fifteen meters if you're counting the tentacles, right? Um, but it's also that they've actually been sighted, I think, only a few times and never really in the wild. Like it's um, it's this big mystery animal that lives in the deep sea that we hardly know anything about. And I think that's just the most exciting thing, right? Like, you think you know everything about the planet here. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, there's colossal squids living down there, by the way. <laughs> 15 meters long could eat you. If you were just swimming in the Pacific, and you were just having a nice leisurely scuba dive or something, like maybe swimming under the ice caps or something for some odd reason... <laughs> Uh, like, and then you just see this giant eyeball in the distance. I would never go into the ocean again. <laughs> never again. <laughs> I am pretty happy that the colossal squid lives all the way in the deep sea where we don't go scuba diving because I don't think I would ever want to meet one in real life. Because, you know, like they are ferocious predators, right? And and yeah, they yeah. live... Um, they live predatory lives like they swim around in the dark they've got these really big big eyeballs because you know in the deep sea basically it's lights out right because the light the sunlight can't reach all the way down there so they have these like really big eyeballs that are really good at seeing any little bit of bioluminescence that might be exuded by other animals there um, and then they just go for it and, and eat it immediately. And sometimes that means that they'll actually eat their own kind, like they're cannibals um, that will eat smaller squid, right? So it's really in your best interest when you're a colossal squid to get as big as possible as quickly as you can. And then you don't have to worry about your mates. You only have to worry about the sperm whales that are going to dive down and eat you. <laughs> so... Like, you've got the colossal squid at one end, but also in the bay, like, where you would normally go swimming or maybe go on holiday, go to the beach or something. What? How is the bay unique? How long has it been there, like Port Phillip Bay or something? Um, that's a really good question, and, and I really like how you're, how you're bringing it um, to a, a, a local you know, looking at it from a, from a local yeah. perspective as well, because we we actually in Melbourne, we're very lucky, right? Because Port Phillip Bay is, well, first of all, it's not really, technically, it's not a bay. Technically, it is an inland sea that consists out of 17 bays. Um, and it's it's wow. quite big. It's 1930 square kilometers big. It's It's really huge. Um, it's very inter very tidal, so it means that you know water flows in through the uh, from the ocean through the Port Phillip heads um, into the bay and then back out again at low tide. So it's very tidal, um, and um, it is actually not that deep. So the average depth of Port Phillip Bay is only about eight meters, um, and it's it's therefore a really nice place to go scuba diving as well. Like there's a lot to see down there in the bay, and and people love going out and and fishing and stuff. Um, and Port Phillip Bay wasn't always there. And we know this because scientists can check that and geologists have looked at the, you know, the way that um, the, the, the rocks are formed around the bay, the sediment, that sort of thing. They, they look at like so with sonar, they look at the sea bottom there. And, and so they could, they could deduct that the bay was formed first around the last, at the end of the last ice age. 
And that was about 10, wow. to, yeah, 10 to 12,000 years ago. Um, that was when uh, the last ice age in this area ended and uh, the bay started flooding with seawater. And what's really beautiful about this is that scientists may have, you know, like they, they, they found that out with science, but we already knew about this from the local First Nations people who've been living in this area for tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of years. And the Bunurong people who were living around the bay at the time and are still there, they still tell stories about their ancestors um, actually experiencing the bay filling up with seawater over a number of years. Um, and they have stories about that, that they have passed on for thousands of generations to still be, then those stories are still alive today. So even before the scientists, the local Aboriginal people here are already well aware of how old Port, Port Phillip Bay is. And before the Ice Age, people could walk to Tasmania from Melbourne. Can you imagine? That, that would be so cool. I could just go like, hmm, yes, let me just go and walk to Tasmania. I know. No lockdowns for me. I'm out of here. Yeah, I don't yeah, need that's a, right. That's I don't right. Need a plane. <laughs> that's right. So, so back in back in those days before the bay was formed, uh, it was a floodplain of the Yarra River. So at the moment, the Yarra comes out at um, you know, like Port Melbourne area, and then it, it <laughs> flows into the bay. But before the before the bay was filled up with seawater, that was actually all um, like salt marshes and low shrubland and things like that really good for hunting for for first nations people there lots of kangaroos and wallabies and things like that that used to live there so if you wanted to walk to tassie you could walk out your door and uh just go like follow the yarra river that would kind of like snake through that through that floodplain pop out at the port Phillip heads and i believe there was a waterfall there a really big waterfall at the time so you'd have to do a bit of uh you know rappelling down the rocks and then um yeah and then you could walk to your uh, to your friends and family of uh, other other nations other aboriginal nations down in tasmania and pay them a visit wow that sounds so cool i wish you could do that now just like walk to tasmania yeah i know it's pretty pretty amazing to think about that so um, in in port phillip bay now bays in general like what do you find in a bay that you don't find in the ocean and what do you find in the ocean that you don't find in a bay like would you find a colossal squid in the bay well i think if we get a colossal squid in the bay it is probably an accident and he's probably not feeling so good um, yeah, so that's that's a good question. So as, as I said before, the bay is actually quite shallow, right? So so the uh, average uh, depth is about eight meters. There eight are meters. yeah, so there are places where it's shallower and there are places where it's deeper. Um, you can actually still underwater. You can actually still see the old Yarra River bed flowing, sort of like underneath oh, underneath really? the water. So there's like that's gorges cool. there and things like that. Um, and those areas of the bay are colonized by animals and plants that really like living in in shallower waters like that. And so the difference, for example, with with the open ocean uh, is that uh, the temperature fluctuates a lot. So it changes a lot over the year because it's quite shallow. So in the summer and the end of the summer, when the bay has been heated up by the sunlight, um, you know, it, it gets a lot warmer there than it would in the ocean. Um, and so, so as an animal, if you want to live there in the bay, you need to be able to, you know, to 
to deal with those kinds of temperature changes over the year um, where it warms up and cools down again. So that's a big difference. Um, and another difference is food availability. So for, for an animal like a colossal squid, um, there, there probably wouldn't be, for like really big animals like, like whales and things like that, there probably wouldn't be enough food because they get a lot of their food coming up from the deep sea. A lot of them eat plankton, uh, you know, or, or larger prey. Um, so yeah, lots of, lots of differences between, between bays and, and open ocean in that sense. There's just a lot less space really. Uh, and so the animals that you find here in Port Phillip Bay um, are very specialized at, at living in shallower waters compared to the ocean. But what animals, like some animals in particular, are there any particular animals that are like known for living only in bays? The animals that live in the bay, you can, you can find most of them in other parts of southern Australia as well. But the cool thing about them is, is that all of those animals that live where we live in the southern end of Australia, they are what is called endemic to this area. And that means that you cannot find these animal and plant species anywhere else in the entire world. So, wow. for example, yeah, it's really special, right? So, so uh, if, if people want to come and see them, you know, they have to they have to fly down here or come from wherever they live in the world and, and see these animals here. And penguins, little penguins are, are an example of that. Oh, you mean like the little fairy penguins you can see? Yeah, the little blue penguins that, that live in the bay and they live on Phillip Island and they live sort of like, yeah. in, you know, in Tasmania as well. So and in, in South Australia. So they have that region where they where they live in their colonies. Um, and I think there's a few in New Zealand as well, but you don't find them anywhere else in the world. So they're super unique. Um, so when you go to the St. Kilda you know, penguin colony that lives off the pier there and you, you can spot them, that's a really special thing. Yeah, the thing about, like, Australia penguins is that you can't really find them anywhere, anywhere else. Like, you can't get penguins anywhere else unless you know you want to go to Antarctica. But who wants to go to Antarctica? It's so cold. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely cold there in winter, yeah, yeah. Well, Antarctica has other penguins, right? They've got those really big, yeah. uh, are they called, what, emperor penguins? Emperor. Yeah, the emperor super big penguins. ones. Um yeah, that's pretty cool too, and they're the biggest ones. But we have the smallest ones in the world, and I think that counts for something as well. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So, in the bay, does it get polluted a lot? Does it, like, is it okay, or is it... Yeah, so that's that's a, it's an interesting question, and, you know, a lot of these questions can all be answered with, it depends. <laughs> so, <laughs> if you compare... The, the health of Port Phillip Bay, and by health, a healthy bay means that, um, you know, there's good biodiversity, there's lots of animals and plants living there, they're living healthy lives, they're reproducing, um, the water is uh, safe for us to swim in, um, you know, we can, we can eat the fish from the bay that we catch and things like that. So, so all of those things have to do with, you know, a healthy bay. And in that sense, we're doing pretty well with Port Phillip Bay, especially... If you if you realize that, you know, there's a five million person city right on the banks of the bay called Melbourne, Metro Melbourne, and then there's Geelong, you know, as well. So there are these urban centers. And, and what happens in other places in the world is that when when urban centers are, are very close to a waterway like that, pollution happens. 
it tends to happen like, when like, when people are around you know unless you know you're first nations people and you know how to live in in harmony with nature a lot better that's a different story but uh when it comes to you know what we call modern society yeah the bay is is facing some pressure so even though we're doing pretty well compared to some other places in the world that have big cities uh on a bay uh, there's still things we can improve and i think most relevant for us um, and something that we really need to look out for for Portville Bay is the plastic pollution that that comes in mm. uh, from the suburbs that we live in. Mm. Because sometimes it happens like, mm, I'm such a good person, I've just finished picking up all the plastic off the street, but I couldn't find a trash can so I dumped it in the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I hope it doesn't always go like that. I think um, <laughs> most of the time it's an accident, right? So so most of the time it will be people trying to do the right thing. Like they'll have, you know, they'll finish their picnic in the park and they've got all their rubbish and they want to put it in the bin, but then the bin is full, right? Have you seen in, in local parks when bins are full, like yeah, people yeah. just keep stacking stuff on top and it gets higher and higher and then the wind comes and blows it all into the stormwater drains. And the stormwater drains in Melbourne, they're not filtered out. So that there's nothing that catches the rubbish. It just goes straight into your nearest creek. Then it goes into the nearest river, which could be the Yarra or the Maribyrnong River. And then it goes out into the bay. And that's how plastic gets to the bay. So most of the time... It is an accident. <laughs> um, but, you know, if 5 million people have accidents like that, you know, it adds up. So, in terms of pollution, we're not doing that good. No, I think maybe not in, ter in terms of, of plastic pollution so much. We can definitely improve. Um, but the good thing is that people are quite becoming quite clued in about these issues and they're they're actually becoming really aware of what they can do about it and um, to make sure that their plastic waste is not getting accidentally getting into the waterways and um you know a lot of people ask me like oh what can i do to help with this problem right so of course you can be really nice and do a litter pickup in your in your local area but really what we want to make sure of is that we don't that we don't put that stuff there in the environment in the first place. So what we try to do is to help at the eco center where I work, we try to help people to use less plastic in their lives. To just really think about like, okay, why do I actually need a plastic bag, right? Can I replace my plastic bag with an alternative that is not made of plastic that cannot accidentally get lost in the waterways? So for example, um, if you uh, need to replace a plastic bag with something else alternative, what would you choose? Bag made out of bamboo, probably. Bag made out of bamboo, a reusable shopping bag, one of those green bags from the supermarket. Um, maybe, you know, some people like to make their own bags and, and sew them. Um, so there are all kinds of other materials that we can use to replace the plastic products that we use. Um, and that helps a lot because if you don't use it, you can't lose it. So, from plastic pollution, what animals suffers mo suffers most from it? Like, is it straws, like turtles and straws, or is it fish in plastic bags? Like, what does plastic pollution actually do? Um. So yeah. So plastic is um, plastic is a really interesting material 
right? It's really useful to us because it's very pliable, it lasts for a very long time, it's waterproof, it's got all of these really handy things that we, that we like, right? Now, the problem with plastic is that when it gets out into the environment, um, it, it breaks up into smaller and smaller pieces. So it breaks up under the UV radiation of the sun. So if you leave a plastic bottle in the sun for long enough, eventually it will become really brittle and you can just like break it into thousands of little pieces with your hand. Or when that plastic bottle is driven over by a car on the road 50 times, right? It, it bursts into all of these tiny little pieces that can then get into the waterways. And we call those pieces microplastics. And the problem with plastics and microplastics is that they get smaller and smaller, but they never break down. They never really disappear out of the water. So what happens is that the plastic breaks down into tiny pieces, sometimes so tiny that you can't even see it with the naked eye anymore. You have to use a microscope to see it, but it still remains plastic. So when an animal eats that, it, it is actually not nutritious for them at all. And the smaller the plastic, the tinier the species of animals that can actually ingest it, right? And so when an animal ingests that plastic, it can um, mess with their, with their guts because sometimes there's like sharp edges. And when I say animals, it could be things like fish, seabirds, um, invertebrates such as, um, you know, crabs or mussels or oysters that can filter these things out of the water. And when it gets into their system, it can block their guts, um, can get stuck in there. Plastic bags can get tangled, you know, in the stomach of uh, seals, for example. Um, and animals can get tangled in fishing line and things like that. That really compromises how they can swim around and hunt and things like that. Um, so so that is that is an issue. And also, when plastic floats around in the water, because it is made of oil, it tends to absorb other molecules of pollution that are already in the waterways you know, floating around and so it kind of absorbs that so if you have like a little tiny microplastic it could have absorbed for example uh, some heavy metals like mercury or or, or cadmium or or some uh, fertilized artificial fertilizers and pesticides and things like that that have run off from agricultural land and then when an animal eats that it can actually end up in in their tissues as well and making them making them sick and the animals that eat that animal will then also get that get that poison in them so you can see that there's lots of different ways that plastic can harm uh, marine life in that sense entanglement like eating it blocking their guts but also bringing toxins into their into their systems and um, this is why it's so important for us to start using less plastic in our lives you know so that so that we don't actually accidentally use that and it doesn't accidentally end up in the bay. So how can we get rid of the microplastics? Is there any way to get rid of it? Well, there's a lot of people who are doing really cool stuff. Like, um, you know, there's people who have these underwater sort of like uh, remote operated vehicles, like little ones that have cameras and lasers and stuff. And they try to, they try to uh, see where microplastics are and then calculate what the density is in that waterway. Um, automatically it's like an automatic system like a computer um, but the truth really is that they can detect those microplastics but it's really hard to remove them you can't really do it because they're once they're in there 
you know, if you want to filter them out, you're also going to accidentally filter out all of the plankton and the little crustaceans, like, you know, tiny little krill and, and um, um, possibly tiny fish and fish larvae and things like that. Um, so, yeah, once it gets in there, it's pretty much impossible to get out. And that's another reason why we're trying to make sure that it doesn't get in there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So the prevention is better than a cure in this uh, in this case. Okay, so you should pretty much stop using plastic rather than pick up all the plastic that other people have dropped. Yeah, I think both of those things are things that need to happen at the same time, right? Because a piece yeah. of plastic that you're not using, you can't lose. So that's the prevention. If you don't if you don't use it, you can't lose it. But if you see a piece of plastic on the ground, right? then it means it's not in the ocean yet. So if you can then pick it up and put it in the bin so that it can be disposed of in the proper in the proper way, you are really helping the oceans because you have just made sure that that plastic bottle or that plastic bag is not going to make it to the ocean. It's not going to turn into microplastics and it's not going to end up inside um, animals that, you know, that we love so much. So you can definitely do both. Okay. That's a good answer. <laughs> Thanks. It's helpful to know that it's not really worth trying to get rid of all the little tiny pieces of plastic that you see, like, in the ocean. Yeah, it's pretty much impossible, you know. So, yeah, that's why prevention prevention is good. Every plastic bag or every plastic bottle that is disposed of properly that you pick up from the street or from the beach is not going to kill animals. And, um, yeah, so so there's lots you can do, yeah. So, about, we were just talking about, like, colossal squid and krill and plankton earlier. So, what really amazes me about the ocean, or one of the things that does, is that everything is so different from each other. Everything's either really big, really small, really vibrant in colour, really pale, camouflaged, all these different factors, and they haven't all evolved the same. Like you do, like you see in some parts of the world that are like, like the desert, all the animals have evolved, or the Antarctic is a better example because all the animals have evolved in kind of a, all in a similar way. Like they've all evolved fur, they've all evolved lots of fats, they've all evolved in a very, you know, specific way. But in the ocean, they just throw that all away. They just go with random stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit like that. That's a good observation. And I think I think one of the reasons... Um, so when you're saying Antarctica, you're talking about... Actually, you're talking about a very specific part of the world that has very specific um, characteristics, right? It gets bloody cold in summer it gets super windy they get lots of snow and ice and so so that is something that is characteristic of that environment that the animals who want and the plants that want to survive there need to adapt to but when you compare it to the ocean the ocean is a really really big place and just like where you have antarctica being a very specific ecosystem on a very specific piece of land you can also have a desert on the land, right? Has completely different circumstances and environments. And so when we look at when you look at different places on the earth on land, 
they're different ecosystems. And the same thing goes for the ocean. So the ocean is not just one ecosystem. It consists of as many ecosystems as we have on land. You know, uh, there's coral reefs. There's the, uh, the open ocean that just consists of water. There's the seafloor. Um, there are communities of microbes and small things that live in the mud on the seafloor, which is a very specific ecosystem. There's even, yeah, there's tropical, there's tropical coral reefs. There are coral reefs in cold waters of Antarctica. There's the deep sea. So all of these ecosystems are, you know, the different Antarcticas and the different um, deserts, you know, comparable on land, but in the ocean. So the animals that live in the ocean, they all live in, mostly live in very specific areas as well of the ocean where they are adapted to that particular ecosystem. Well, Antarctica actually is theoretically a desert, but... Um... <laughs> yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. In terms of definition, it is a desert, but I, do, I still find it really cool that even if it's all different ecosystems, they can live in semi-harmony with others like all the it feels but in in a way it feels like all the little ecosystems make one big ecosystem it's like ecoception <laughs> yes that's right that's right you you wake up you wake up in one ecosystem and then you zoom out and you wake up in a bigger ecosystem <laughs> like i like that sapinski's triangle yeah it's uh yeah wow that kind of blows my mind <laughs> actually thinking about that yeah yeah and the ocean is a good example of that right like you could be in a tiny little ecosystem on like one coral reef and then you zoom out and all of a sudden it's like all the coral reefs in like you know the indo-pacific and then you zoom out of that and then it turns out to be this big mass of water that has deep seas in it and um colossal squid and whales as well as tiny little mandarin fish and when you said coastal squid, that made me think of um something I heard of earlier. But um apparently, uh all squid, or did all all squid used to have shells or something? I don't really know the specifics, which is why I'm asking you. Well, I'm no uh, definitely not an expert in uh, marine paleontology or like you know ancient uh, um, animals that used to live here and are now extinct. Um, but yeah, the squid and the the octopuses that we know today, you know, I guess they used to have you know they used to have common ancestors that they that they evolved from, and some of them have their shells inside like squid and um, cuttlefish have shells, still have shells, but they're just like inside their body, so you can't see them on the outside. Um, and then you've got octopuses. But I thought, what about like, well, sorry for interrupting, but what about like a nautilus, like a nautilus shell? Yeah, so nautiluses are, um, they're a little bit different. So they're definitely cousins of, of squid and octopuses, but they're a little bit more removed. So um, they have indeed got a shell <laughs> that they've evolved on the outside right so whereas squid and um um, um squid and uh what was i saying yeah cuttlefish they have their shells on the inside um so with the nautilus they're also a little bit different from normal octopuses in the sense that they don't have tentacles technically you know how when you see a nautilus it's got like all of these like like yeah, lots of little like, like squiggly it's like a 
It's like a little shrimp with a shell. I know, right? And it has all these, like, it, it looks a little bit like tentacles, but there's lots of them that are sticking out around mm-hmm. his head. Um, so technically, they're not tentacles. Um, they have evolved in a slightly different way. And they, they don't have suckers on them, like the tentacles of giant squid or octopuses or, or other squids have. So they're quite, um, they're smooth. But apparently, they are super, super sticky. So when a nautilus catches a prey, it it sticks so well that it, their arms stick so well to this prey that if their prey is too big and too strong and it pulls away, it actually pulls off the arms. That's how sticky they are. So that plan may backfire occasionally, know, right? <laughs> so if that nautilus is trying to catch you, for example, it's like okay, either I'm going to eat you or I'm going to lose all of my arms. <laughs> Do they do their arms grow back? I'm not sure, but they have lots and lots and lots of them, uh, and I'm sure they would grow back because it would be pretty sad if you would like make one mistake and all of your arms are gone, right? Mm. <laughs> My poor arms. Yeah, that's right. How am I going to eat? How am I going to feed myself now? So, how, like, I was thinking earlier about like um, I don't know what you would call it, but like. Like when other when animals team up to help other animals, like they live in symbiosis. And I thought specifically about the one with the sea anemone and the clownfish, which I I found really cool. Because you know how like clownfish like live with a sea anemone? And the sea anemone is like their safe spot because clownfish are actually immune to the poison that sea anemones give off. And the sea and the um, clownfish will lead in like bigger prey into the sea anemone, and the sea anemone will eat the um, the prey in exchange for protection for the f- clownfish, which I thought was really cool. It's a pretty good deal, isn't it? Really, when you think about mm. it, yeah. It's like having a house that you have to feed. <laughs> yeah, but you don't have to pay for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can live there for free. Yeah, you can live there for free, apart yeah, from... Yeah, you can live there for free, that's right. Yeah, so it's a house you need to feed, that's true. And um, But are there any other types of them that live in the ocean? Like, other examples? Maybe? Like, other examples of that kind of symbiosis, you mean? Yeah, like... Like that. Yeah, um, look, I think, yeah, there's there's lots of them. So there's a, um, one of the more well-known ones, I think, is... Um, uh, there is a fish called a goby and the gobies gobies are a big family of fish right like there's lots of different species of gobies they live in lots of different places on the on the on the seafloor uh some of them are tropical other ones live in port phillip bay like there's all kinds of you know they live in all kinds of places but but there are particular species of gobies that um, um live with a shrimp they live together in the same hole so what happens is that gobies like to live in little holes they dig in the seafloor. Um, and the shrimp lives in that hole with the goby and it's kind of like it's kind of like the cleaner. So the goby digs the hole which provides the shelter and a house for the shrimp and in exchange the shrimp keeps that keeps that hole clean and in exchange for that, you know, the shrimp is protected by the goby. What does it mean? What do you mean by keeps it clean? Like eats the poo? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just uh, like cleans out algae and uh, all kinds of stuff. Um, 
yeah, and just keeps keeps the place in in good nick, like a good cleaner shrimp. Um, that's and it probably that's actually cool it probably actually also eats because gobies are hunters, and so you know it probably gets like little bits and pieces of food that the goby will you know drag into its hole and then eat, and then the shrimp can like clean that out, but also gets that food. So um, yeah, so they have a really good working relationship living together. It makes you wonder how they agree on that like do they have language or how do they decide oh yes i want to be friends with this shrimp in particular yeah that's a really good question i'm not really sure i think these these kinds of relationships evolve over a very long period of time um and um yeah that's actually a really good question for like an evolutionary biologist who uh who studies these kinds of things like how do these relationships actually come into being but in general it would have been probably pretty random like it would have been something like you know a random a random goby and a random shrimp kind of hang out together the shrimp's like oh i can get all this food from this goby mm, and yummy. uh and the goby doesn't really care you know he's like yeah shrimp whatever you can just like eat my scraps and the shrimp is like oh this is a really good way to live you know and so <laughs> the shrimp stays there and then the shrimp reproduces and all the baby shrimp they might just be a little bit because they have the genes of that first shrimp they might have that disposition of then also wanting to live with a fish right and so because they are the the sons and daughters of that first shrimp so that and in that way this is a very simplified version i'm giving you here <laughs> but in that way over the generations these kinds of mutually um beneficial relationships may evolve this is like the extreme simplified version of that obviously mm. okay because that i just was also thinking of that one where you know like the uh that's i can't remember the type of that fish but it's like the cleaner fish for the shark and it eats like the muck off the shark's teeth. Yeah, yeah. They're called um there's a very well-known species of cleaner wrasse they're called and they live uh, in tropical areas. And uh they have cleaning stations and I visited one in Bali once. Uh and it's a very particular cleaning station that's just off the uh, off the coast of Nusa Penida, which is an island off the coast of Bali. And it's a cleaning station specifically for manta rays. And so mm -hmm. manta rays, really, really big rays that live in the open ocean, they will come to that area and kind of just like swim around a little bit because they know that the cleaner wrasses live there and will come and clean the parasites off their hide and, you know, clean up bits and pieces of dead skin that they need to get rid of. Um, so there are actually places in the ocean that are like beauty salons for marine animals sea turtles do it do it too they love just like laying down in a particular sponge like they're sitting in like a nice chair at the beautician and have the cleaning wrasses just clean them up all over the place That's and cool. uh, yeah it's pretty cool and the marine animals you know they know about this they know that uh, that these cleaner wrasses live there and that they will visit there regularly it's quite sophisticated so tech is a parasite technically like symbiosis are they yeah it's a pretty one-sided advantage, but like, does <laughs> yes, it, <make> <laughs> it definitely is. So in general, there are three different types of symbiosis. The first one is commensalism, um, and that kind of means that um, 
one of the one of the two parties that live together or do things together gets a benefit. The other one doesn't really, but they also doesn't get a disadvantage, right? So that's kind of the middle ground. So for example, uh, barnacles that grow on whales, they have very specific species of barnacles that will grow on their skin. So these barnacles, you know, they get all the oxygen and they might get a free feed from the whale because they go through the creel and all that sort of thing. Uh, but they don't really give anything back. You know, the whale is not doesn't really care. It doesn't matter if there's a barnacle on him or not. So that's called commensalism. Then there is mutualism, which is what you were talking about with the clownfish and the anemones, uh, where there is a mutual benefit. So both of the partners that have a relationship together benefit from that partner, from, from that relationship. So the clownfish get a place to live and protection, um, and the anemone gets prey that are lured in by the clownfish. So there's a mutual um, benefit there. And then the last one is parasitism, where that's a symbiotic relationship where the parasite gets all the goodies and all of the benefits, but it's actually detrimental to the host. So detrimental to the other party in that relationship, because they're usually worse off when there's a parasite involved, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, three different types of symbiosis. Okay, that's cool. But like, like mushroom symbiosis? Yeah, so mushrooms are very good at, um, they're, they're very good at mutualism, right? Uh, where where they will help plants grow by allowing them to have better water uptake in their roots, and um, and they get the sugars from the photosynthesis through the from the plants in return, right? So that's a mutually beneficial relationship called mutualism, and then you've got the mushrooms, for example, that are breaking down dead things like dead wood and things like that. Uh, so that's a different thing again. But mushrooms are pretty good at those mutually beneficial relationships, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry, just needed you to put that into terms I understand. Yeah, <laughs> I get that. So, in the ocean, you have, like, the top part of the ocean, where, like, you got, like, the little, the animals that might just, like, live on the ocean... Like the the top of the ocean, then you've got like the middle of the ocean, where you've got things like little fish and schools of fish and maybe some sharks and other things. Then you've got the deep ocean, which is like got the anglerfish and things like that. But what what is the difference between them that makes them different? Like why do animal why do certain animals live in, live in different parts of the ocean? Um, well, different parts of the ocean have different characteristics, I guess. Like that, that uh, first layer that you're talking about where schools of fish live and sharks and where you see most of the life um, that we can see with our eyes and visit. Um, those animals and plants, they can live there in the way that they do because there is sunlight that is available. Right. And so the deeper you go into the ocean, the less sunlight is able to penetrate through the water. And so when you go when you go between, you know, when you go below about like 50 meters or something like that, depending on the visibility and turbidity of the water, uh, it gets it gets really, really dark really quickly. And so for a lot of species that depend on sunlight, you know, there's nothing for them down there. 
And you need special adaptations if you are an animal and you're going to live in a place where it's perpetually dark, like anglerfish, for example. So, so that's a really big characteristic of those different, um, yeah, different parts of the ocean. So if, if there is light or if there is no light. Um, yeah, so, you know, you can imagine, like, what, is the, what are the first life forms that would not be able to live, you know, once the lights go out? Plants? Yeah, that's right, plants, because they need sunlight, you know, and the, and the same goes for um, plankton, because plankton are these, like, you know, phytoplankton are tiny little plant cells that need photosynthesis, they, you know, need the sunlight to, to eat and produce their food and, and all that sort of stuff, so, um, mm -hmm. yeah, so the, in the deep sea, once the light goes out and you're in the dark, um, yeah, there's a lot of animals eating each other basically because that's you know there's no plants for them to eat so what is so you've got the levels of the ocean but what's the ocean made of like what salts um well i think most of the salts in the ocean are you know are, are things that we we know quite well like the things that because you know table salt often comes from from the ocean it's just like you know you leave seawater to dry under the sun and the water evaporates and there you have your table salt so there's a lot of like sodium, um, uh, chlorine. That's that's um, you know they're all ions. So that means that when they're in, when you put salt in water, it dissolves and it breaks into into smaller molecules. Um, and so we have sodium, uh, potassium, chloride, that sort of thing. And we also have calcium and calcium carbonate. Um, and those are molecules that are super important. For example, on coral reefs because corals will build their skeleton out of those dissolved um, chemicals that naturally occur in the ocean. So when a coral is, is born, it's a, like a little swimming, like a little swimming uh, planula, we call that, or a larvae. And once it finds a rock, it'll settle down there, it'll get stuck, stick itself to the rock, and then it'll start gathering um, these molecules of calcium carbonate and um, hydroxide out of the seawater and start building its skeleton out of that. And that's how we, that's how cor coral reefs grow. So they're basically consisting of animals pulling all of these uh, salts out of the water column and building it into a solid structure. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. That's really cool. Mm. So we asked this question to Georgia and maybe someone else, but what would the perfect world look like for you? Like, as in, an example is like getting rid of plastic and stuff and things like that. Well, I think, uh, I think the perfect world for me would be consisting of a world where people really understand that they are nature just as much as the nature they see around them you know that they are not separate from nature because i think you know in in modern western culture there is this deep belief that we have that we are separated from the natural world it's like we are humans and then over there is nature you know like we we don't see ourselves as a part of it and that causes all kinds of problems uh, because we're making really bad decisions for the environment when we see ourselves as separate of it, because we think that if we do something, you know, it doesn't have any effect, 
or if it does have an effect, we don't really care because we think that, you know, we're separate. So it's not going to come back to us. Um, mm -hmm. And that that's a really big problem. And I think a lot of uh, bad decisions for the environment are being made based on that lie that we tell ourselves that we are separate from nature, right? Including polluting waterways and oceans. So an ideal world for me would be um, people looking at nature like, uh, for example, the first peoples of Australia see nature, you know, as an integral part of themselves, as the mother that they were born out of, uh, that's, that sustains them. Um, and that, that goes for everybody. So I would really love it if people would really understand that on a deep level. And if we don't see ourselves separate from nature, it means that we're going to make better choices that not only benefit us, but benefit everything around us. Because we understand that if we do something, it has an effect on all the other things and that will eventually come back to us. Right? So that is my wish for the world, where where people will really... Um, feel such part of nature that they will start making better choices that benefit all of life on the planet, not just humans. Wow, Mel said a really similar thing to that too. Yeah, did she? That's probably why we're friends. <laughs> yeah, we have the same dream. <laughs> I think that really is like a good, a good way of expressing it. Yeah, and I think, um, and it's really nice, you know, because there's more and more people who understand this. And uh, I learn a lot from, from talking with uh, the elders um, of indigenous peoples and all over the world, but also, you know, specifically here in Australia, because, you know, there's people, people here who really understand this. They really get it and they are willing, um, you know, to, to have conversations with us about this uh, so, that, so that we can get back into that harmony with the world around us as well. So it's really valuable. And um, being from Northern Europe and coming here, uh, where there are people who really understand this relationship that we should be having with the planet, um, it's, yeah, it's really valuable. So I'm trying to learn as much as I can so that I can make better choices too. Wow. Thanks for that. It is, thank you. It's been really fascinating talking to you. It's been really, really nice and enjoyable and actually really fun. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I had fun too. And I really oh. love your questions. They're so clever. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> I just realized the way I said that made, made it sound like I don't enjoy it normally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I think, I think people understand. <laughs> I think they'll get it. Thanks so much for having me, Ned. It's, it was really a pleasure to talk with you. And um, I really enjoy speaking with people who are as curious about the natural world as I am. So yeah, conversations like this are super, super fun for me. And they really feed my soul. So thank you for having me on. Thank you. We will say goodbye now because it's going to be quite a long podcast, but I think it's going to be really good. Okay, <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Ned. And I'm looking forward to, uh, yeah, to hearing more of your podcasts. Thank you and bye-bye. Bye. Congratulations, you've made it to the end of this Noodlebugs podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Look out for other Noodlebugs podcasts that may be coming soon, and have a good day.